Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow and the Nasdaq set new record highs today as the dollar sold off near the end of the day to close at yet another low for the year. The dollar index closed at 93.51. The low, I think, was 93.39. This is the lowest level the index has traded at this year. Remember, the dollar index rallied 6% between the time Trump was elected and the time he was inaugurated, approximately. It's now fell better than 10% since inauguration. Many currencies are hitting two-year highs. The the Australian dollar is at a two-year high today. You know, certain commodities are at two-year highs. Copper broke to a two-year high. Oil prices have been strong. Oil was up about 80 cents a barrel today. After being up about two bucks yesterday, we're now above 48.50. I think I'm looking at 48.67, getting close to $50 a barrel again. You know, just a few days ago or a week ago or so, I mean, we were getting close to 40 again. And people were talking about oil uh, in the low 30s. And here we are almost uh, knocking on the door at 50 again. You know, one of the reasons, though, for the strength in commodities is the weakness in the U.S. dollar. The catalyst for the weakness in the dollar today was the Federal Reserve, FOMC, concluded their two-day meeting today. Their press release came out at 2 o'clock Eastern time. And they announced that they decided not to raise interest rates during this meeting. Now, pretty much nobody expected the Fed to raise interest rates, which is one of the reasons why they didn't. But there was some anticipation that the Federal Reserve may be more specific concerning when it might start quantitative tightening, although they're not calling it quantitative tightening. They're just calling it balance sheet normalization. And so people thought, well, are they going to announce the specifics of when they're going to start and by how much are they going to allow their balance sheet to run down? But the Fed did not put any kind of start date. All they said is that the process would begin relatively soon. Now, the last time they put out a statement, they said it would begin this year. Now they're saying it will begin relatively soon. Now, why didn't they leave it at this year? Well, because this year means sometime before the end of the year, right? Which would mean within the next six months. Now, does relatively soon imply sooner than the next six months? I don't think so, because I think if they were going to do it sometime before the end of the year, that would be relatively soon. I would think within the next six months would qualify as relatively soon. Now, since nine months from now or a year from now, could still be relatively soon because who knows what relative means? Relative to what, right? So relatively soon, as far as I'm concerned, means that it may not happen this year. It may happen next year, which you could argue is still relatively soon. So to me, I think that was a dovish word substitute because this year kind of meant that it would happen before the end of the year. Relatively soon, you have no idea when it's going to happen. In fact, relatively soon could mean never. 
right? And maybe that's what it does mean. Maybe the Fed means that they're never going to shrink its balance sheet. And they just said relatively soon. Maybe they're talking about relative to the end of the world, right? I mean, the world's going to be around for a few billion more years, right? I think it's going to take 5 billion years before the sun's supernovas. So I suppose that relative to that, the Fed is going to begin shrinking its balance sheet soon. So who knows? But I think it was a dovish comment. And I guess so did the market. And the fact that they didn't put a date, they also, you know, mentioned inflation being, you know, below 2%. And of course, whenever they talk about inflation being too low, that's another signal to the market that maybe the Fed is not going to hike or is not going to be as aggressive or as easy. It's hard to even use the word aggressive and our Fed in the same uh, in the same sentence, unless you're talking about aggressive easing, aggressive accommodation. But I think the markets after initial delay, right, the markets really didn't know what to do for the first half hour. But then eventually the dollar broke and gold finally popped up. I mean, nothing big. It was up around eleven, twelve dollars. It was about unchanged going into the meet the announcement. And the knee jerk reaction was a two or three dollar sell off in the price of gold. And then uh, gold came back to unch. And then eventually we had the rally. Gold stocks also had a pretty good day today. Finally, uh, the GDX up about two and a half percent. The junior miners doing even better. Uh, GDXJ up three and three quarters percent. Still, these stocks have barely moved this year given the pronounced weakness in the U.S. dollar. But, hey, this is just getting started. I mean, this trade is just beginning now. Because remember, we had everybody long the dollar when the year began, and they haven't all flipped around. I mean, now we have some people taking the other side of that trade, but I still think this is a big wave, and there's a lot more behind it. But, you know, one of the biggest moves that I think coming is going to be the Chinese currency, the yuan, the RMB, whatever you want to call it, I think it's going a lot higher. And if you recall, I talked about this because a lot of hedge funds and a lot of you know smart guys uh, have been short the, the yuan. I mean, they've all been expecting the currency to break. And the reason was because you know they, it's pegged to the dollar, right? And the dollar was so strong and everybody thought the dollar would keep getting strong. They believed that the Chinese central bank would have to throw in the towel and allow the Chinese currency to weaken against the dollar along with all the other currencies. Because if the dollar kept rising, that would mean the Chinese currency would rise with it, and that would put a lot of pressure on the Bank of China because now the currency they think would be too strong relative to a lot of their trading partners. So the entire collapse in the RMB was based on the dollar staying strong. Well, the dollar's not strong. The dollar is weakening. And I think that trade is going to unravel and there's going to be some big losses for the people who are still in it. And I believe they're still in that trade. And if you look at the chart of the Chinese currency, it looks like it's putting in a major bottom and it looks like the dollar is putting in a major top. And we're very close to a big breakdown in that chart, meaning U.S. dollar falling and Chinese RMB rising. And that is going to cause a lot of losses for some of these hedge funds. That's also going to be very bullish for commodities. You know, one of the reasons that copper is at a two-year high today is because of Chinese buying. In fact, when Caterpillar reported better than expected earnings yesterday, part of it was because of sales to China. So the Chinese economy is picking up. And as the Chinese currency gathers strength, that simply brings down commodity prices for Chinese buyers. And they're just going to buy even more. They're also going to buy more gold. They're going to buy more everything as their currency picks up. The one thing they're going to buy less of are U.S. Treasuries, uh, because I think the exodus out of U.S. Treasuries is going to continue, especially as long as the Federal Reserve 
is telegraphing quantitative tightening. Because what is the Federal Reserve telling the markets it's going to do? It is going to sell treasuries. Well, what do you want to do if you own treasuries? You want to sell first. You want to front run the Fed. The Fed is the biggest holder of treasuries in the world, and they're going to sell. And they're, they're announcing in advance that they're going to sell. Well, obviously, you know what they're going to do. They're going to sell. You don't want to wait until after they sell. You want to get out of the way. This is like a, a, you know, a Mack truck. Why would you want to stand there? So anybody who has U.S. Treasuries, if the Fed says we're going to be selling, well, you want to sell now. That's the opposite of what happened when they would do quantitative easing, right? The Federal Reserve was buying Treasuries every month. Everybody knew they were going to be buyers. So a lot of traders wanted to buy first so they can turn around and sell to the Fed at a higher price. They were just front running that trade. Well, now they're going to front run it in reverse if, in fact, the Fed ever fulfills uh, that threat or that promise, depending on how you want to look at it. And I, you know, I'm still not sure. You know, if Hillary Clinton were president, I would say no way, no way quantitative tightening. Even if they're talking about it, they're never going to do it. But with Donald Trump in there, you know, it's a wild card. I still don't know. Yellen and the Fed may be prepared to let the market tank, let the economy tank under Trump in a way that they wouldn't under Obama or under Clinton. And in fact, I think Donald Trump is already trying to dangle a carrot. I was reading some, a quote from him because he's, you know, he's developing his short list for uh, people to replace Yellen when he gets to nominate a new Fed chairman. And right now he said it's between two people or at the top of his list. And one of the two is Janet Yellen. And he said, you know, he likes Yellen. She's a low interest rate lady. And as long as she keeps rates low, then, you know, he's going to consider reappointing her, which I think is almost daring Yellen to raise rates. I mean, if, if he's saying, well, you know, as long as she keeps rates low, she may be able to keep her job. I mean, if she keeps rates low, everybody can argue, well, you just gave into the pressure. You were just pressured by Trump. You wanted your job. And so you kept rates low because the president told you to keep them low. It's almost like in order to prove her independence, she's got to raise rates even if she didn't want to. But I don't think that Trump is going to renominate Yellen. I think he wants her to believe that she's got a shot at the job because he thinks maybe she will keep interest rates low to keep the job. But I think there's no way that he's going to reappoint her regardless. I mean, why would he do that? I mean, he has an opportunity to appoint his own guy. Why would he just reappoint Clinton's gal? I mean, why would he do that? Right? I mean, he, I mean, that's not like Donald Trump. He wants to put a Trump person I mean, look how he fired Comey because Comey wasn't going to be a loyal member of his uh, team, right? He kept asking for Comey's loyalty. Comey wouldn't give it, so he fired him. I mean, obviously, Janet Yellen is not going to be loyal. He knows that. So he's going to try to put somebody in that job who's going to be a member of Team Trump regardless. So Janet Yellen would be foolish to even you know, take that bait, to even think that she's got a chance at getting reappointed. So maybe she'll try to get this, you know, QT process started. Maybe she'll try to get another rate hike under her belt before she leaves. And maybe her hope is that she gets out of Dodge, just like Ben Bernanke did, and passes that baton to the Trump appointee for a Fed chairman. And so this whole thing blows up and it's all Team Trump, right? There's nobody left from the Obama team still there. Trump's in the White House. Trump's got his guy at the Fed. And then everything collapses. We get all the blowback from all the the QE and the beginning of the QT, the big bubble bursts, everything collapses, and now it's all on Trump because, you know, it's his guy at the Fed. 
It's his economy. He claimed it. He owns it. It's his recovery. It's his stock market. Everything was going great because he said it was great. And it was all great because of him and because of his policies. And once you've committed to that, you can't backtrack and now blame it on your predecessor when you've just taken credit for everything that's happened since you've been president. Well, now you have to accept the responsibility for all the bad things that happened. So that's where we are. So I don't know, you know, maybe the Fed will actually get this started. Maybe it won't. But you know what? To the dollar, it doesn't matter. Because even if the Fed raises rates another quarter point once or twice, too little, too late, the dollar's still going down, gold's still going up, commodities are still going up. Of course, the sooner they have to do an about face, uh, the, the faster the dollar's going to fall, the quicker gold's going to rise. But I think the, the path is already set. It's just a trajectory. So the only thing that changes based on Fed rhetoric or Fed action is how quickly the dollar goes down. Right? And, and how far it falls and how, how quickly gold rises and how high it rises. But then ultimately, regardless, we're going to get to the point where we are back in official recession. The Federal Reserve is going to be reversing course. So whether they start the rate cuts from one and a quarter or one and three quarters doesn't really matter. They're going to end up in the same place. And wherever the Fed has its balance sheet, even if it's managed to shrink it slightly, right? if we get a little bit of shrinkage, uh, it's not going to matter. Uh, because uh, they're going to start growing all over again. So it's it's not going to get anywhere near where it was before the QE program started. And then when they start launching QE4, this thing is going to blow up like a gigantic balloon. But it's going to take the economy down with it, because when that happens, then the dollar's down for the count. Speaking about down for the count, Obamacare repeal continues to fail. They had a couple of votes. You know, the Republicans, they just got enough Republican support to allow a vote. I think uh, the vice president had to cast the tie-breaking vote. It was 50-50. And he, he came in, Pence, and cast a vote so that they can actually debate Obamacare repeal. But so far, they've tried it twice, and I think they've gone down in flames. I don't know if the third time will be the charm. But the most recent one, just, I don't know, like an hour ago, was uh, one I think maybe Rand Paul introduced it, and this was the straight repeal. This was just repealing Obamacare, no bells and whistles. The only difference was it repealed it two years from now. So it didn't go away right away. It was going to go away in two years, which even I didn't like that. Because you know what? You vote to repeal it, but you leave it on the books for two years. They can still save it. It may never repeal. They may pass something to to keep it alive, right? I mean, all this kicking the can down the road. I say if you're going to repeal it, just repeal it. Don't say it's repealed in two years because it has a two-year lifeline. And then the other problem with this, you know, it's repealed two years from now, is let's say there are a bunch of problems that happened with Obamacare during those two years. They blame it on the fact that it's being repealed. They blame it on all the uncertainty that's been interjected by the repeal, as opposed to the fact that it's just Obamacare doesn't work, and that's why it's collapsing. So to keep it around for a couple of years and then put all the blame for the problems on the Republicans for repealing it, rather than the Democrats for passing in the first place. So I think the whole repeal of two years from now, you know, had a lot of problems anyway. So I'm not that upset that it didn't it didn't actually make it. But, you know, that bill, you know, repeal it, but give it two years. That's the exact bill that the Republicans passed, passed when Obama was president and Obama happily vetoed it. Now, the Republicans knew it was going to be vetoed when they passed it, which is why they did. And they really passed it so that they can run on it. They can campaign on it. All these Republicans campaign. Hey, just elect us. Get us to the White House so we can repeal Obamacare. 
Well, now they have the Congress and they have the presidency and they have the opportunity to pass the exact same bill and they didn't pass it because they knew it would be signed and they didn't want it to be signed. So now they don't have the guts for the straight repeal, but they don't even have the guts for whatever other repeal effort failed. I mean, they have something now they're trying to do. They're calling it a light repeal or something, which again, they're only repealing the parts that people don't like, which are the mandates and the penalties for not buying insurance, which will actually make Obamacare in theory even worse. Because under that scenario, even fewer people will buy health insurance who are healthy because they can turn around and buy it when they get sick. And the death spiral that is Obamacare will just quicken because insurance premiums will rise even faster as more and more healthy people rightly drop coverage. You know, all the people they talk about that are going to lose coverage, they're not losing it. They're voluntarily giving it up. They have, they don't need it. It's not that they lose coverage. They don't need coverage, right? I've said this before. Why do people need health insurance? Because they know that if they get sick, they can't buy it because the insurance companies won't sell it to them. But the minute you force insurance companies to sell you insurance, even if you're already sick, and they can't charge you any more than they would have charged you had you bought it if you were healthy, nobody needs insurance. So why buy something you don't need? Why waste money buying insurance when you're healthy? Just buy it if you get sick, and you may never get sick. So that is the problem. I said that is the, 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 the fatal flaw. That is the essence of Obamacare, to let sick people buy insurance after they get sick so no healthy people actually have to buy it unless you force them to do it unless you require employers to provide it, unless you force individuals to buy it, right? But all the Republicans want to do is get rid of the, the, the penalties, but keep the perk, which which will destroy the whole thing even faster. So I hope they don't pass that skinny repeal or whatever they're calling it, because it's just going to make the problem worse, except it's going to make it their problem. They're going to own the problem. Just get away from it. If you don't have the guts to repeal it, just let the Democrats own it. Let it fall apart and then blame it on Obama, blame it on Democrats, blame it on big government. The last thing you want to do is this half-assed repeal that isn't really a repeal that's preserve and replace, replace it with a Republican brand, but preserve the problems and you know, you're know you in for a disaster. It's unfortunate that these Republicans don't have the guts to actually repeal Obamacare. You know what should happen is the Republicans that refuse to vote for straight repeal especially those Republicans who voted for straight repeal when Obama was president, but who refused to vote for it with Trump. Let's get rid of those guys. You know, and I bet those same Republicans, if Hillary Clinton was president right now, I bet that that bill would have passed, right? They would have passed it because they knew she was going to veto it. And it would have been great for the 2018 campaign. Yep, vote for us. We'll repeal Obamacare. Republicans loved running about repealing Obamacare, but for some reason, they don't want to actually repeal it. They just wanted to pretend that they wanted to repeal it. Now, the problem is, what are they going to run on in 2018? What's their new rallying cry? What false promise are they going to make with voters to, 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 get, to get reelected? And especially if this economy is tanking by 2018, uh, if this stock market is in a bear market, uh, the Republicans have a good chance of being ousted. I mean, even though it's hard to do when you have all these incumbents and you look at the numbers, but look at the popularity of Trump. I mean, it's at a record low, really, for a president at this stage uh, in office, and it could be a lot lower. I mean, obviously, if we're in recession, if uh, you know we're in uh, a bear market in stocks, I mean, what you want to do in business or in politics is you want to under-promise and over-deliver. 
Well, it's too late for Trump to do that. I mean, he's completely overpromised, right? We're we, we're going to win so often. We're going to get tired of winning. We're going to want to lose just to break up the monotony, right? Everything is going to be great. Just elect me. It's going to be fantastic. Everything is fantastic. Everything is great, right? And so everybody's expectations were as high as possible, right? The bar was set in the stratosphere. And then when the elections come around, when the public are disappointed, even the people who voted for Trump are going to be disappointed in the lack of progress, the fact that the economy is getting worse, right, that prices are rising, that wages are not rising. A lot of, uh, uh, you know, nothing is going to have changed, right? You're not, you, we're not going to have all these great jobs for people who have part-time jobs. The people who have left the labor force, there's no great jobs waiting for them when they return. All the promises uh, that were made by candidate Trump, none of them are really going to be fulfilled by President Trump. And so voters are going to be frustrated. And we're going to see that in 2018. And we'll obviously see it even bigger in 2020, to the extent that Trump is still president. And I, I believe he will be. But if the if the recession that begins sometime during, you know, this year or next, once it begins, it ain't ending. The Fed's not going to be able to stimulate us out of it. So I think once this recession begins, we're going to be in it uh, during the, the, the 2020 uh, presidential elections. And so it's going to be very hard uh, for Trump to win re-election when the economy's in recession, especially when he inherited an economy that was supposedly in great shape. I mean, that's going to be the story that the Democrats are going to tell, that uh, that Trump wrecked the fantastic economy that he inherited uh, from, from Obama. One final thought for this podcast, going back to the cryptocurrencies, there was a story that came out yesterday that the SEC was now looking into these uh, ICOs, these initial coin offerings, and looking at having these companies that are doing these ICOs uh, regulated and registered, and you know, as if they were selling securities. That you know, these are like initial public offerings, initial coin offerings, and you know, now that the SEC is really starting to look into cryptocurrencies, the logical conclusion is that they may end up declaring cryptocurrencies to be securities. And if they are securities or if the SEC believes that they are securities, then they, they're regulated. All the security laws apply to cryptocurrencies and the trading of cryptocurrencies and the uh, entities that facilitate those transactions end up being regulated by the SEC. And you might say, wait a minute, that's crazy. How can how can Bitcoin be a security? Right. Well, it's easy because, you know, it's just based on what the government thinks. Right? I don't personally believe that cryptocurrencies are securities, but it's not my opinion that counts. I mean, with the government, the government makes the opinion and they decide what, what, what they consider a, uh, a security. I remember when I first started with the, the Perth Mint, you know, the Perth Mint is down in Australia and you can buy gold and silver from the Perth Mint. But they also have this certificate program. And I am one of the, the authorized dealers for the Perth Mint Certificate Program. And I've been a dealer since about 2001, 2002, uh, selling gold and silver. When I first started, you know, silver was like four or five bucks an ounce. Uh, gold was around 300. And I started, I was a dealer. And so my, my clients would buy gold and silver. And then the Perth Mint would hold it for them and issue them a certificate, a storage certificate saying, hey, you know, we've got your gold and silver and here is a piece of paper that evidences the fact that we're holding your gold and silver. And, you know, you can cash it in whatever you want. And, well, you know, either you can order out your gold and silver and pay a premium for the fabrication 
or you can just sell it, redeem your certificate, and you know they'll give you the cash value of the gold and silver, whatever it's worth, when when you redeem it. And my my brokerage firm, Europe Pacific Capital, was selling. And one of the reasons that I was selling them through my broker dealer is because there's something called the model state securities law, which applies to precious metals dealers. And it says that if you're selling precious metals, you um, you have to deliver them. You can't store them. Otherwise, you're violating this law unless you're a you're regulated by you know a government ent- entity like the SEC. So because I was selling Perth Mint program through my broker dealer, uh, I was regulated by the SEC and FINRA. And, and therefore, I could sell in these model states like California. Well, what happened is during an audit, the SEC, you know, there was auditing me or FINRA, I forget which one. Uh, but ultimately, the SEC got the information. They saw all the transactions for the Perth Mint. And they initially sent me a letter that they were accusing me that I was selling unregistered securities, that they considered these Perth Mint certificates to be securities. And since they hadn't been registered Uh, with any of the states in which I was selling that I was in violation of securities laws because I was selling unregistered securities. And of course, I objected. I said, these are not securities. These are just receipts for gold that's being stored in a vault in Australia. They're not securities. And so I ended up hiring a lawyer. I forget what it cost me for an opinion, maybe $50,000. But I got a legal opinion that argued that they were not securities. And then I was able to answer the government's letter with an opinion from an outside counsel. And ultimately, the SEC agreed with the logic of my lawyer that they were not securities and they left me alone. But, you know, they alleged they were securities. So they could do the same thing with with Bitcoin. But, you know, I think the argument that Bitcoin is a security. And again, it's not an argument that I would make. But I think the argument is stronger than my Perthman certificates were security, because I can see the government crafting the following argument. They'll say, look, Bitcoin is like an enterprise. It's like a company. There's, it, you know, And all the individual Bitcoins are just one share of the whole, right? They all add together to become the you know Bitcoin. And there's little fractional Bitcoins that everybody owns of this bigger whole, because the only thing that gives the Bitcoin value is the part is the fact that it's part of this larger community of bitcoins right the larger whole because you can't do anything with a bitcoin other than exchange it to somebody else who wants it and why do they want it because it's part of this bitcoin it's on this ledger it's on it's part of this ecosystem they could just define that as like well it's like like ibm right you have a share it's a fractional ownership of ibm and a bitcoin is a fractional ownership of the bitcoin community, the Bitcoin ecosystem, they whatever they want to call it, but they can say you're securitizing Bitcoin and you're selling off the Bitcoin in little increments, especially when the community is talking about ICOs, initial public offerings, very similar to the way stocks are marketed. People are coming up with these things and launching them. And now uh, it's like you're selling a security because whoever is launching the coin, somebody is getting the funds initially as the new coins are created. And a lot of people in Bitcoin now are trying to get Bitcoin ETFs. They're trying to get options on Bitcoin or all sorts of things. And so a lot of this stuff starts to argue that, hey, they're treating it like a security. In fact, the U.S. government has already said that Bitcoin is an asset, right? They didn't say it's a currency. They said it's an asset for the purpose of taxes. Well, if it's an asset, what if it's a financial asset? What if it's a security? So the 
the SEC can certainly make this argument. And if they hold it to be security, man, oh my God. I mean, then, you know, you're talking about tremendous regulations with respect to blue sky laws in the 50 states and who can buy them and, and what the regulations are. I mean, it's going to be a nightmare uh, if these things uh, get declared as a uh, as being a security. But again, that's just another one of a number of regulatory risks that are out there. You know, I keep hearing people say, hey, there's no way the government can take down Bitcoin. It's impervious to government. You know, if the government wants to take it down, it could take it down. One way is to declare it a security. But they don't even have to declare it a security. All they have to do is make uh, anybody who deals in Bitcoins uh, subject to all the AML requirements and anti-money laundering and KYC requirements of financial institutions. And that would dramatically increase the cost of, uh, of using Bitcoin. And of course, it would eliminate the appeal. I mean, a lot of people want anonymity. I mean, if every time you use your Bitcoin, you have to disclose, you know, your passport or your Social Security number or photo IDs or all kinds of paperwork, it's going to dramatically reduce the appeal. And especially to banks. I mean, if banks are scared of dealing with anybody who does who accepts Bitcoin because of the AML requirements, I mean, they won't even have bank accounts for retailers if those retailers are any way associated with Bitcoin, because then the banks are responsible for any money laundering that happens uh, from through their customers. So there's a lot of things governments can do. And I know people say, well, that's just the United States. Well, you know, the United States exerts a lot of influence because the dollar is still the reserve currency. And if, uh, you know, we decide to implement those requirements, it affects every bank in the world that wants access to the Fed, that wants access to clearing dollars, which is pretty much everybody. I mean, that's how we were able to pressure Switzerland. I mean, we the United States government was able to use is control of the banking system to break the secrecy of Swiss bank accounts. I mean, Swiss banking secrecy had been around for hundreds of years, yet uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve was able to crush it, and the U.S. Treasury, based on denying Swiss bank access to the Fed and to, you know, the dollars. And so if they can crush the independence of, of Switzerland and, and Swiss banking, I mean, they can obviously uh, go against these cryptocurrencies. But this is just the, the latest round, the, the latest risk that is out there among a number of risks that people are overlooking when it comes to the potential regulations that might ultimately emerge. And in fact, in that respect, cryptocurrencies become a victim of their own success, right? The more popular they become, the higher the price, the more money that becomes involved, the more incentive the government has to start regulating, to start taxing. If they actually fear that there's some real competitive threat there, right, between their currencies that they create. Look, the government will put a little kid out of business because he's delivering mail, right? You're not allowed to compete with the post office because the post office has a monopoly. So if the government is afraid of a kid delivering mail on a bicycle because, you know, it threatens the post office, if they really are afraid that these cryptocurrencies represent some kind of threat to their monetary monopoly, how long do you think they're going to let them survive? Uh, but anyway, again, it's not going to take government to bring these things down. I think they're going to come down on their own because they're just going to fail because they're not going to work. But that's just another reason to be concerned. And another reason, again, if you do happen to own a lot of these cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin and you have some big profits, take some. You know, there's an old expression on Wall Street, bears make money, bulls make money and pigs get slaughtered. So if you got some profits, don't be a pig and don't get slaughtered. 